There is a reality that exists beyond what is readily visible. We can't see it. We're not aware of it, but it's there for sure. This story is the story about an occasion in which Jesus gives his disciples a vivid reminder that there is a spiritual reality that they may not see, they may not be aware of, but nonetheless, it is certainly there. This is the key, a key event in the life of Christ called the transfiguration. The transfiguration. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. Now, we'll talk about those six days here in just a few minutes. But again, given their, their previous location back in chapter 8, most people think, most scholars think that this is Mount Hermon that they are ascending. Mount Hermon was in the very northern part of Israel today. It's out of the, the Syria-Lebanon border. And Mount Hermon rose to between nine and 10,000 feet high, nine and 10,000 feet high. And it will be at the top of this mountain that Peter, James, and John will be kind of like children looking into a microscope for the first time as Jesus gives them a look into a reality they have never seen before. Second part of verse 2. There he, that is Jesus, was transfigured before them. Now that word transfigured in the Greek, that is in the original language the New Testament was written in, looks very much like an English word that you will know as metamorphosis which means a change of form. You remember that term from ninth grade biology. It's the term that describes the process of when a caterpillar changes into a butterfly. You remember that from ninth grade biology? If you don't remember that, maybe some of you remember a children's program that was very popular back in the 1990s that featured these, uh, these, uh, these uh, heroes who would transform, who would metamorphose size into their, uh, their superhero alter ego, and the name of that program was the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, right? Anybody remember that? You know, when, uh, when they got in the crunch, they would uh, cry out those words, it's morphin time, right? And they would transform into their superhero alter ego. Well, in this story, there is no cry of it's morphin time. Jesus just suddenly morphs. He just suddenly is transfigured, suddenly transformed right in front of their eyes. He says he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Luke, in his gospel account, describes it this way. He says that Jesus had taken the disciples up on the mountain to pray, and as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. Matthew says his face shone like, uh, like the sun, and his clothes became as bright as, as a flash of lightning. Now, they also had company on the mountaintop with them. Mark 9, 4 says, And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Now, <laughs> Elijah and Moses have been dead for hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. So, so what are they doing there? Luke tells us that they were talking with Jesus. He says they were talking to him. They spoke about his, that is Christ's, departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. That makes it kind of sound like Jesus is about to go on a cruise. But not quite. Not quite. The departure is the trip that Jesus is going to make into Jerusalem 
in order to face his crucifixion, his death, his resurrection. That's the trip that he's going to be going on. Luke also lets us know that the disciples had apparently fallen asleep during this prayer meeting. It sounds familiar that they're going to fall asleep later on in the Gospels as well at a critical time. They'd fallen asleep during this prayer meeting. Uh, hey, but by the way, how many of you ever climbed up a, a real high mountain? High, I see Phil Lakin sitting up there. He's climbed a bunch of high mountains, hasn't you? But, uh, I, in fact, I got to climb one, one with them a, a while back. Uh, not some of the kind he is used to climbing. But um, uh, I, I, when I was, I've climbed a high mountain three times. And uh, one, the first time was back when I was in high school. I was working one summer at a Young Life ranch on their work crew. They called it out in Colorado at the Young Life camp. Uh, it was called the work crew because we did all the work while the campers were having all the fun. And uh, not really, we, we had a lot of fun too. But um, uh, we, we always had a, a day off or break between the camps. And on this particular day off, this particular break, our work crew boss, uh, the, the guy who was leading our work crew, uh, decided we, we would all climb Mount Princeton, which was nearby, which is a little over 14,000 feet, that we would all walk, hike up Mount Princeton. And we did so. When we got to the top, he decided this would be, it was incredibly beautiful up there, as you can imagine, he decided this would be a great time to have a prayer meeting. And so we did. We, we began to pray up there on top of Mount Princeton. Well, I got very, very sleepy. <laughs> and I'm, you know, tired from the hike up the mountain. The air was very thin. And we weren't very far into the prayer meeting before I, I, I mean, I went out like a light. <laughs> to this day, I've never had a dream like this since. But I began to dream that I was being stung by a bee. <laughs> but the worst part is, <laughs> is that apparently as I was being stung by this bee, I began to make noises like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> providing some impromptu entertainment for those who were right around me at the time. <laughs> well, mercifully, one of my buddies elbowed me awake very quickly, and I awakened to be able to participate in the rest of the prayer meeting. Well, Peter, James, and John were also awakened. But when they woke up, the prayer meeting was over. Luke 9, 32. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. I mean, what's, what's happening here? What exactly is taking place? Jesus is allowing them to see a reality they had never seen before. The veil of Christ's incarnate humanity, that veil of human flesh that he put on when he was born into this world, was pulled back. And the fullness of the reality of who he was was revealed. His divine essence, his glory, his godness was allowed to shine through. No microscope needed. One of those disciples, the one named John, would write later in his gospel, we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father. Woo! Some things are worth whooping about, right? Yeah. Incredible. 
But the big question is why? Why now? Why now does Jesus reveal this reality to his disciples? And why are, are Moses and Elijah there with him? We've got to remember the context, the context. You see, Jesus had also blown their minds six days earlier, but in a much different way. See, Peter and his disciples had, had become convinced that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. But the Messiah they had pictured in their minds was much different than the Messiah that Jesus came to be. For their entire lives, the disciples had been taught the scriptures in both the Old Testament law and the teachings of the prophets that all spoke about the coming of a Messiah who would, who would utterly destroy, would wipe out the enemies of all the Jewish people and would establish his throne in Jerusalem and from there would, would rule over the earth, rule over the world. That is what they expected of Jesus. They were looking for him to be this militaristic, conquering Messiah. But they had ignored all the other passages of Scripture that spoke of a Messiah who would be like a suffering servant and who would die for the sins of all. They had never connected those Scriptures to their hopes, though, for a Messiah. At least not until Jesus did that for them. Jesus, as we said last week, did not come to smash their enemies. He came to save them. He came to save Jew and Gentile alike. And so it was six days earlier that Jesus had pulled this huge carpet of their false expectations right out from underneath the disciples telling them that he, the, the, the true Messiah, would suffer and must be killed and three days later would rise again. Now, we are not told what the disciples were thinking or feeling after that mind-blowing exchange that they had with Jesus. We're not told. But holy cow, I, they must have felt like they had been gut-punched and totally wrung out as they were left with lots and lots and lots to think about. So I suspect, and this is my own speculation, I suspect that during that six-day period prior to the time that they walked up this mountain together, that there had not been a whole lot of conversation between the disciples and Jesus. So, back to that question. Why now? Why now? Why now does Jesus pull back the curtain and reveal his divine glory to them? It is because he loved them. Because he loved them. He knows that they're experiencing this whole gamut of terrible emotions, this bewildering confusion over this whole idea of a suffering Messiah. I mean, everything from that to very deep sadness over the very thought that Jesus could actually be killed. Probably even some doubt and question about whether, you know, did we really follow the right person or should we still keep following them? I mean, they had to be enormously discouraged. So what was their greatest need at this moment? Their greatest need 
was for powerful encouragement. And that's exactly what Jesus gives them. By, by removing the curtain of his humanity and showing them this incredible glory of his divinity, I mean, Jesus gives to them extraordinary proof of his divine messiahship, as well as unquestionable affirmation that God's kingdom had indeed arrived in the person of himself, of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And why are Elijah and Moses there? Well, they were actually more affirmation of Jesus' Messiahship. You see, Moses had not only delivered the Israelites hundreds of years earlier from their 400 years of slavery in, in, in Egypt, but he had also been Israel's lawgiver. And Elijah was really second only to Moses as, as the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. So their presence here confirms that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that God had ever said through both the law and the prophets about the coming of the Messiah. Not to mention everything about the truth and life <laughs> that they contained as well. That was Jesus is God's final word. Hebrews chapter 1 says, Long ago God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. The son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. So you can just imagine, once the disciples had a chance to reflect on all of this, and what incredible encouragement this had to be to them at this point. I mean, you see how much Jesus loves them. But do you also see how much Jesus loves you? Do you see that? Do you know how much you matter to him? You personally matter to him? Maybe like the disciples, your viewpoint of Jesus is somewhat mistaken. But maybe just in, in a different way. He loves you just as much as he loved Peter, James, and John. <laughs> he loves you so much he wants to show you the reality of who he is too. Or maybe you are a confident believer, but you, need, you just need encouragement right now in your life. He wants to encourage you too. Or Mark tells us, what happens next? Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us, let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and, and one for Elijah. Mark says he didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Oh, you know, there's lots of speculations as to what Peter was trying to say or do here, but you know, very frankly, Mark just kind of gives you the impression that he didn't know what to say. He was just, he was just trying to make some conversation here. He was so frightened. And that's what Mark does make absolutely clear. These guys were scared at this point, very scared. But it is about to get even scarier. Verse 7, Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice from the cloud came and said, This is my Son, whom I love. Listen to him. Try to get this scene in your mind. 
Jewish theologians refer to this cloud as the Shekinah, which means that the settled presence of God. In other words, this luminous cloud this was the Shekinah glory of God settling upon them on the top of that mountain. So, so get this picture in your mind. The settled presence of God's glory is surrounding the glory of his Son. You see, it wasn't just the disciples who needed encouraging. Jesus needed it too. Because when this is all over, Jesus is about to walk down that mountain and will be on that trip we talked about earlier into Jerusalem, onto the cross, crucified for you and me. So God the Father, in this cloud, essentially engulfs his son in a giant hug. That's what's happening here. Engulfs his son in a giant hug and then tells him how much he loves him. And then gives him verbal affirmation of his, of his continued mission. God the Father had done the same thing for Jesus back at his baptism, another crucial point in his life when he was about to begin his, his public ministry. Mark tells us about that back in chapter 1 where Jesus again, where God the Father audibly declared to God the Son, you are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And so here again, at this most difficult part of his messianic mission, as he is about to become the sacrifice for our sins, securing our forgiveness and redemption by his blood upon the cross, the Father declares to him, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Let me ask you a question. This will be a difficult question for some of you, I know. What would it mean to you to receive that kind of love and affirmation and blessing from your father? At the most critical juncture in your life, the most critical and challenging times in your life, what, what would that mean to you? I know that many of you today have, have never received from your earthly father that kind of affirmation. But let me say, if that's you, if you never received that from your earthly father, I want you to know that God, your heavenly Father, is ready. God, your heavenly Father, loves you. God, your heavenly Father, is pleased with you. God, your heavenly Father, is ready to step in and be the Father that you never had, the best kind of Father. See, through God the Son, Jesus Christ, you can have that kind of relationship with God the Father. Well, Peter is finally speechless. In fact, Matthew tells us in his account, Matthew 17, when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came, and, and in yet a, another demonstration of his amazing love for them, 
he, 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 he touched them. He touched, gently touched them. said, you can get up. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Let me ask, why were the disciples so intensely frightened at that point? Why did they bury their faces in the ground? It's because another one of those things that that they had been taught all their lives from the Scriptures that no one can look upon the face of God and live. Hundreds of years earlier, one of these people that had been on the top of the mountain with Jesus, Moses, experienced the Shekinah glory of God coming down in a cloud upon the top of Mount Sinai. And at that time, God made it very clear to him that Moses could not see him face to face. And so the disciples, that's why they buried their faces in the ground. Now, this is another one of those spiritual realities that can be a struggle to grasp sometimes. And it's this. There is an infinite gap between humans and deity. An infinite gap between humans and God. If a sinful human being, which is what all of us are, literally stepped into God's presence, God's absolute holiness would decimate us. That's why the Bible says in the book of Romans in the New Testament, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We fall short. Not not a one of us could exist in the holy presence of the glory of God. So why did Peter, James, and John survive on top of the mountain as they were completely enveloped by the glory of God? Again, who was the only person that they saw when they opened their eyes? It was Jesus. It was Jesus. It is only in relationship with Jesus Christ that any human being may enter into the presence of holy God. Only through Christ. Because Jesus, and only Jesus, fills that infinite gap between man and God with himself, himself upon the cross. You know, it's interesting that all this takes place on, on, on top of a mountain, I think. Because a, a lot of people like to equate heaven and the presence of God with, with being at the top of a mountain, don't they? And so people will think or they'll, they'll say things like, well, you know, we, we, um, we're all trying to get to the top of the mountain. It's just that, you know, people, everybody takes a, a different path to get there. But we all end up in the same place. Friends, I would be very much amiss today if I did not tell you that that kind of thinking is dead wrong, spiritually dead. There is only one path, 
only one path. There's only one way, and that is through Jesus Christ. Gospel of John, chapter 14 and verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is because there is nothing that we can do to earn, to deserve, to somehow, some way secure a relationship with God. It does not happen as a result of anything that we can do. It is based totally and completely upon what Jesus Christ in his love, his infinite love for us, has already done for us. As he took that journey down the mountain to the cross and died there in our place for our sin and then rose again on the third day after. Well, let me close with this wonderful, in essence, a little footnote to the reality of this event. Peter, one of those three disciples that was on the mountain, some 30 years after the resurrection of Christ, wrote two different letters to Christians who were at, in churches at, at that point where they were spread throughout the ancient world. And in his second letter, letter, he was desperately wanting to provide encouragement for his fellow believers who at that time were under severe persecution and were being attacked daily by, by false teachers with all kinds of speculation. And so Peter wanted to encourage and motivate them to stay strong in Christ. And as he writes, he reflects back from this mountaintop experience of the transfiguration, and he writes these words. And I'll close with these. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories. We didn't just make all this stuff up. When we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Let's pray together.